Hi, this is Matt Sleppin, and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's episode is an interview with my friend, Jeff Berkus, the president and COO of Federal Realty Investment Trust. Federal is one of the country's leading non-mall retail property owner developers, and the headline is that they're doing just fine, even through the twin crises of COVID and the Amazon effect on the retail real estate business. We recorded our conversation on March 16th. This is Leading Voice's second retail sector conversation since COVID. The first was with Ken Bernstein from Acadia Retail Trust. Given Ken's portfolio, we focused much of our conversation on the effect of the twin crises on street retail. Acadia owns many street-level retail properties in well-known shopping districts. He and I discussed Georgetown and DuPont Circle, two neighborhoods I know well in Washington, D.C. Jeff and I talk a lot about Federal's highly curated mixed-use suburban open-air centers. We spoke most specifically about Santana Row, their well-known and really a model for this kind of property in San Jose where Jeff offices and for which I placed their first development executive who took the property from a tear-down woody walk-up center well into its development. In the interview, Jeff talks in a very hands-on way about how Federal has worked with its core tenants, especially the restaurant tenants and the retail shops, to maintain some level of business during the various phases of the lockdowns. We spoke a bit about their secret sauce of mixing uses, particularly retail office and apartments, although I would have liked to drill down more since the risks in pulling this off are high for the uninitiated. One of the many things about the recruiting business that most delights me and my team at Terra Search Partners is the combination of both history and relationships, which I think is at the core of our secret sauce. Here's a recollection. The first real kitchen knife I bought, you know those weighty, perfect 8-inch blades? I got at a going-out-of-business sale at a knife store that I visited when, in preparing for that search for Federal, I was checking out the old town and country shopping center, which was about to be torn down to create Santana Row. I still have that knife, and importantly, I have the knowledge and experience of having been intimate to the development, trials, travails, and success of Santana Row, and then working in the orbit of someone like Jeff now for 20 years. It's indeed our secret sauce that the history and relationships stick and ultimately bring a bit of wisdom and meaning to the work that we do at Terra Search Partners that sits alongside the more obvious transactional side of the search business. We've been under various levels of lockdown now for a year, and now with vaccines and COVID protocols getting us nearer to normal, I kept thinking through the conversation with Jeff how starved we all are for a night out, having a drink at a table near laughing strangers with string lights overhead just feeling normal again. I am sure that we'll be returning to places that we love like Santana Row and the great neighborhoods like DuPont Circle and Georgetown to shop, play, and put our shekels back into that retail ecosystem. I bet once we feel safe, we will revel back into that social life that's such a part of humanity and that we've missed so much in COVID. Also, before we get to the episode, a thank you and shout out to you all, our listeners. You know that feeling when someone really gets you? Well, I often get gotten through the work on this podcast, especially when the feedback acknowledges what we're really trying to do, not just through the individual episodes, but through the arc of the series. The last episode with Robin Hughes was clearly one of those episodes that struck a chord, and we received feedback where listeners were sharing that conversation for its lessons with colleagues, and then it moved others to take a deeper role in making positive change. Whether it's hearing your stories on how a conversation like the one with Robin that has social implications or just gaining real estate and career wisdom through the interviews, I love hearing stories. By the way, as do the reviews section in the Apple Podcast app about how the conversations have been meaningful to you. So keep them coming. Keep finding your own learnings and inspiration in these discussions. And if you are, please, please share them with friends and colleagues. And of course, feel free to email me at my day job at matt at I hope that you enjoy the conversation with Jeff Burkus. So Jeff, my good friend, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast. I've been wanting to do this a long time. And in particular, I want to have a conversation about the retail sector, which has been underrepresented in our 90 conversations. And it's a quickly changing sector greatly impacted by COVID. So thank you for being here. 
Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. I'm I'm looking forward to our next hour or so together and uh, appreciate you making me part of Leading Voices. So, Jeff, you were just promoted to federal realty, and I can give the introduction to you, and we're going to dive into your career history later on in the podcast. But better that you kind of set the stage for what is federal, where does federal sit within the retail ownership landscape, and then we'll talk about all kinds of things. Sure, sure. Well, most of this you know, but uh, you know, for everybody out there that doesn't, Federal's a publicly traded real estate investment trust. We were founded in uh, 1962, so 59 years ago. I think we are one of the oldest, if not the second oldest, uh, REIT in the United States. We're traded on the New York Stock Exchange. We're a S&P 500 company, and our space within the uh, publicly traded universe is open air retail. So. Retail within uh, the publicly traded REIT universe gets put into a couple of buckets. One is enclosed malls. Two would be open air, and, and we're in the second sector. We own just just about 100 properties, uh, roughly 23 million square feet of uh, commercial space with 2,800 tenants. And we'll get into this as we go through the conversation, but we have a very diversified tenant base, no single tenant in our portfolio accounts for more than 2.7% of our uh, annual base rent. We also have 2,900 residential units in our portfolio. And we're relatively concentrated. Federal operates in the bigger coastal markets, so Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., South Florida on the East Coast, and uh, the Bay Area and L.A. on the West Coast. But that's a quick snapshot of the uh, of the portfolio and the company, Matt. Mm-hmm. A couple just drill downs on that. It's interesting. One is you were founded in 1962. So you were in that first generation of REITs, not the SNL crisis era REITs. That, that's correct. That's correct. We were originally formed as a REIT where a lot of the people or a lot of the companies in our space were, uh, you know, roll ups in the early 90s and became REITs as a result of the lack of liquidity. Uh, caused by the uh, SNL crisis, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And as you say, there's two kinds of REITs in the retail space, one enclosed mall, the other open air shopping centers. But you differentiate yourself within that sector by place making kind of places like Santana Row. So talk about what that is and how that differentiates from what we might think of as sub- kind of suburban strip shopping centers. Yeah, that's that's a, a really good question and a, a great observation, Matt. So we differ from the other public companies in our peer group in that we are format agnostic. So other than an enclosed mall, we don't really care so much what the format of the retail space is. So a lot of the other companies in our sector are more narrowly focused. Maybe they'll be a grocery anchored shopping center company, or they will be uh, a power center company. Federal uh, has never been specific on format. What we have been very disciplined about over the you know course of our nearly 60-year history is picking what we think are the best locations within the markets where we do business, and then developing or redeveloping a retail-driven product that responds to that specific market or community, regardless of format. So within our portfolio, that could that could be a grocery drug anchored neighborhood center. It could be a big power center or a community center, a lifestyle center, or, you know, as you point out, Matt, a retail-driven mixed-use property like Bethesda Row, Pike and Rose, Assembly Row, Santana Row out here in California. So to us, it's, it's all about the location and the quality of the location and then either developing or redeveloping over time the physical improvements to to meet the needs of that specific location rather than being driven by a specific uh, retail format. Mm -hmm. And I think of you more mostly because we got to know each other through my recruiting the first person who helped build Santana Row. So I think of the mixed-use properties more than the other properties. What part of either your reputation or what the REIT investors like to look at is that mixed-use portfolio versus gross anchored or big bucks? Well, you know, we, we've been in the mixed-use business now for over 25 years. It started with Bethesda Row and, and Bethesda, Maryland, and it has grown since since then. And we'll 
I think probably get to this in a few minutes, but we have, you know, again, the, the big four, as we refer to them internally, the big four mixed use properties that we've developed and continue to uh, expand. Again, Bethesda Row and Bethesda, Maryland, Pike and Rose and North Bethesda, Maryland, Assembly Row outside of Boston and Somerville, Mass, and Santana Row here in San Jose. And those depending on the property we've we've been developing redeveloping expanding you know for over 25 years mm-hmm. and then we have some smaller mixed use properties as well villages of Sherlington and Arlington Virginia and West Post which we used to call Pentagon Row uh, in Arlington as well and you know the whole evolution of those properties and what we've garnered from being in that business and been able to, you know, apply to the rest of the portfolio over the course of our 25, 26, 27 years, whatever it's been, it's just been, you know, fantastic, right? And um, we've learned a lot from combining different real estate uses on a single site. We've learned a lot about, you know, what drives a customer experience when you come to a property like that, you know, whether mm-hmm. it be the ground level plane improvements like the the sidewalks and cafe zones and and parks and differentiated storefronts so each of the merchants can express their own identity to uh, how parking works and how the different uses integrate residential apartments, condos, hotel. And, you know, we didn't start out to do this at Santana Row and um, uh, we've gotten into it in a big way, but office, mm-hmm. an office in a mixed use setting is great. And we have office at all four of our big mixed use properties now. and. We've learned a lot from not just designing and developing those properties, but also operating them. And a lot of the things we've learned about, you know, placemaking and outdoor dining, which has become huge, of course, during COVID, we've we've applied to the rest of our portfolio. So if you go to what I would call a more typical open air shopping center within Federal's portfolio, you will see elements of, the, of those properties that have come from our mixed use experience. It's, it's been a great learning experience for us. And it's something where, you know, the lessons we've learned, we've been able to apply in some form or fashion across the whole portfolio. And, you know, we think that makes us a better landlord. We think that makes us a better partner with our tenants, a better uh, member of the community. And it, you know, quite frankly, allows us to um, drive the operating performance of those properties in a much more positive way than, than we otherwise would if we if we did not have that experience in a mixed-use business. So we think it's hugely important. Hmm. And when someone says we've learned a lot and repeats that three times, th- that mm-hmm. means they stubbed their toes a bunch of times too? So Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> so the cost of some of that learning experience, which again, I got to share with you at the time, any headlines of those things that like don't flat out don't work or that evolved into working better? Well, yeah, I wouldn't say there's anything big. I, I would say a lot of it is nuanced and around the edges. Um, you know, certainly in, in the design, you learn a lot, right? Mm-hmm. But just stepping back, whether it's a grocery anchored neighborhood center or a big community center or a mixed use property, really what we're trying to do as an owner of those properties is a couple of things. One is to be a meaningful part of the community and be the place where when somebody comes in from out of town to visit, you want to take them to Santana Row or Bethesda Row, or if you need to go grocery shopping, you know, you're going to choose to go to one of our, our centers because it's got the right tenants in it outside of just the grocery store and it looks and feels great. And, you know, maybe you'll spend a little bit more time there. It'll be convenient. It'll be clean. It'll be safe. What what we're, what I'm getting at and what, what we're trying to always do within our portfolio is offer a great experience to the people that use the properties. And we think by doing that, people come back more frequently. We think they spend more time when they come back. And when mm-hmm. they spend more time, they spend more money, you know, which is good for the retail merchants, uh, the restaurants, and the uh, service providers at our property. And, you know, that's that's really what we're striving to do is be an in- integral part of the community and provide a great experience for everybody that comes to one of our properties. Cool. 
So we're going to come back to those questions because the headline. So I have two headlines to talk about. One is COVID and what's COVID done, particularly restaurants and people just can't go to these places or haven't been able to. Now they probably can. That's number one. And then number two, the headline of real retail over the last two or three years is it's dead. It's a lousy sector. And that's a broad brush across the sector. But there are drivers to change. So I want to talk about both kind of COVID and how that may have accelerated some of that change, what's permanent, what's not permanent, and walk through all that. But let's talk a corporate thing first in this, which is you wake up at the very beginning of March last year, and all of a sudden you have to change everything about your business, both corporately, your people, they're not coming to work, your tenants and dealing with them, and then realizing, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to be here for a while. Were you prepared, and how did you deal with that? we did as well as we could to adapt as quickly as we could. And then I think we've done a very good job of staying light on our feet, if you will, through the pandemic and being responsive to what was happening, you know, whether it's the second shutdown or, you know, some not so great weather, which doesn't help with things like outdoor dining. I I think we've, we've been really responsive to that. We were, we were somewhat fortunate coming into it in that, you know, we've, always been focused on um, making sure that the people that work for the company have the best technology solution. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of people in our company, you know, whether they're development people, acquisitions people, leasing people, you know, the senior team that are out of the office a lot and uh, back and forth between offices and out visiting properties, touring tenants, uh, whatever. So we were fairly set up from a technology standpoint to be remote. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of technology tools that, you know, we never thought we'd use the way that we're using them that allow us to do work from our company laptop or personal laptop, iPad, iPhone, you know, right. Google phone, whatever. And we we had just by coincidence had converted to Zoom for our um, our video conferencing and we're in the process of converting our phone system to uh, Zoom before the uh, pandemic hit. So from a technology standpoint, um, getting everybody out of the office quickly so everybody could be safe and we could be in compliance with uh, all the various uh, jurisdictions where we do business, you know, it was a little bit fortuitous that we were uh, well down the road from a technology standpoint and a communication standpoint. So I think that went well. The other thing that we did, and we, we have the luxury, unlike a lot of companies in our space, we have the luxury of having really relatively few properties, you know, from a hundred properties in a company of our size from a valuation perspective is, is really not that many. And many of the other companies in our uh, peer group have a multiple of that. And uh, what that allowed us to do, and, you know, even without a pandemic, what that allows us to do is have a lot more um, senior management focus on each asset, if you will. But we did a very good job, I think, of getting the teams and the working groups together and communicating frequently when the pandemic hit. And we've maintained that throughout the pandemic a little bit to a lesser degree now than, you know, maybe six or nine months ago. But um, we're all on the phone frequently talking about what's happening in the various jurisdictions where we operate and what's happening with the tenants. And, uh, you know, the, the relative small number of properties has allowed us to give uh, all of those situations, if you will, a lot of time and attention and a custom solution, if you will, mm-hmm. as opposed to a broad brush solution. Right. And I, I think that's been very, very important through the pandemic. And I, you know, quite frankly, think we've, under Don's leadership, done a great job of it. And it's interesting because you have less properties and therefore also less jurisdictions, as you said. But talk about the range of those custom, like, would it be night and day in terms of a problem you might have in Florida and a problem you might have at Santana Row or how you're dealing with that problem? Yeah, it's and some of it's driven by geography because mm-hmm. clearly in Florida, it's more open than it is in California or quite frankly, more open than it is any place that we do business. But really, I think, Matt, it gets down to the, you know, more of the individual tenant and what's what's going on with the tenant. Mm -hmm. A lot of leases had to be modified. I think something like, uh, you know, 30 or 40% of our leases required some form of modification. 
And rather than saying, okay, you know, for this type of tenant, here's what we're going to do. And for that type of tenant, here's what we're going to do. We were able really to get, you know, from our property management up through asset management to senior management and leasing teams involved and coming up with not a one size fits all solution for that group of tenants, but, you know, something that, that worked for the individual situation and, Maybe the situation for that tenant, if they were a chain tenant, was different in Florida than it was in California. And we were able to think through that and work through that with the tenant. And I think, you know, to both parties benefit, if you will, because clearly, you know, this isn't, you know, pandemic's not anybody's fault. And uh, we took the attitude early on that we were all in this together and we had to work with the people that pay us rent to uh, come up with a, a solution that fit the specific circumstance. So talk about, we keep referring back to Santana Rokes as the property. I know the best, although I used to live near Bethesda Rose, so I kind of get both of them. But at Santana Row, how did you deal with restaurants? And I know because you curate those restaurants, you can't afford for them to go out of business. So are you partners with them? How do you, you just talk through solutions? You know, as you might imagine, we have a handful of let's call them national chain restaurants down here that you know are well capitalized and have the ability to access capital. And the negotiation or solution for them was was fairly straightforward. And then, as you know, well, Matt, the bulk of the restaurants here are sole proprietorships or small local regional chains. And we had to spend a lot of time working with that type of tenant here at Santana and really all of our mixed use properties and some of our more important um, restaurant tenants at our shopping centers as well and craft a custom solution. And, you know, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about this and analyzing it and a lot of time uh, talking internally and talking with those tenants. And the conclusion we came to is, on one hand, kind of obvious. On, on the other hand, it, it takes some work to get there. But it's, it's much better to have those people that have a viable business stay in business throughout the pandemic and be able to reopen quickly as restrictions are lifted as opposed to being you know, overly aggressive or tough with them in a lease negotiation and potentially forcing them out of business, right? And on top of it, we don't really think that's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, you know, specifically here at Santana, we, we made deals with a lot of the restaurant groups here to pay the greater of, um, you know, triple net charges or operating costs or a percentage of sales with a firm sort of end date when we all thought the pandemic would be over, which we haven't quite come to yet, right. when they would return to their contract minimum rent. And in addition to that, you know, we wanted to make sure the customer experience was was really strong. And we didn't want, you know, the restaurateurs who are going to be short on staff out dealing with this on their own and each, you know, doing a, a different job of it. So our operating team procured a lot of heaters. We procured tents. We put down synthetic turf under those tents. We put heaters inside the tents. We worked with the tenants to put lighting inside of the tents. Um, so the customers that come and, and patronize those restaurants have as comfortable of an experience and you know, during the rainy season here, uh, you know, a dry experience and can help uh, drive business at those restaurants. We didn't want to leave them on their own to do that. And we, we spent a fair amount of money and time and energy doing that. And I think in hindsight, uh, you know, both things that we did, modifying the leases and then also helping to set the property up for success, specifically as it relates to outdoor dining, I think those were smart things to yeah. do in hindsight. They've worked out well. We also came up with a uh, loan program very early on in the pandemic where, you know, if somebody hadn't applied for or received their PPP funding or they needed some additional funding for whatever reason related to their operation of their business, you know, whether it was buying more tables and chairs or, you know, restocking uh, a walk-in cooler or something like that, that they had a financial resource uh, mm -hmm. to come to um, to get the money to do that. So we set that program up very early on in the, uh, in the pandemic as well for our tenants. 
And then we spent a lot of time, a lot of the property management, asset management people spent a lot of time with our small shop tenants, mom and pop tenants, assisting them in accessing resources to get through PPP and, you know, to make applications for uh, loans and grants and things that were available through the federal government and the state governments uh, to be able to have the capital to run their businesses. So, a very, very active, hands-on approach we took. Mm -hmm. Did you have any that you kind of curated out of the properties who were not your strongest performers and then let's invest in someone new who will be more successful over time for the center? Well, you know, naturally, as you might expect, not everybody wanted to live through the pandemic and come out on the other side. Specifically here at Santana, we had two restaurants where... uh, you know, the operators have been at the property for 17, 18 years, and they were further along in their careers and, mm-hmm. you know, didn't have that much lease, lease term left. And they said, hey, you know, we would, we'd rather just hang up our cleats now than live through this and, you know, just come out the other side and have a couple of years left. We want, we're, we're ready to retire anyway. So there were a couple that elected not to um, go forward under that program. And, you know, it's, sometimes hard to believe right now, but we we have three restaurants under construction, new restaurants under construction at Santana Row right now, and we're about to sign a lease for a fourth. And if you'd asked me back in, you know, May or June last year, you know, would we be talking about new restaurants that have restaurant operating groups that have no legacy issues, that have access to fresh capital, spending the kind of money they need to spend to build out and open restaurants at the tail end of a pandemic. If you'd asked me, would that happen? I would have said flat out no and a nano stuck it. But um, yeah, that's that's happening not only here at Santana Row, but also, uh, you know, several of our uh, properties on the East Coast. And interestingly, you know, a common thread, if you will, is some of these restaurant groups that had operated solely exclusively in downtowns or CBDs, mm-hmm. given what's gone on in the downtowns across the country, are now looking out to the first ring suburbs where really the bulk of our portfolio is located and saying, you know, hey, when, maybe it's better if maybe it's better if we diversify a little bit and um, come out of DC and into Bethesda. I mentioned that because you you know the relationship there well. And or hey, instead of opening our fourth restaurant in San Francisco, maybe it's maybe it's time that we uh, go down the peninsula and open something in Santana Row. And we're seeing multiple examples of that right now. I bet that's the case. It's interesting because Bethesda was always a good restaurant place in and of itself, including outside of Bethesda Row. But it uh, much less restaurant success in the city. People aren't returning to work in the same way. So I would think in the trend line, it would be much better to be diversified in the suburbs. And people are going to go back to eat as soon as they can. People oh, want to yeah. have fun. Um, yeah, I uh, look at I. You know, we saw this the uh, past couple of weekends on the East Coast, as as well as out here. You know, where we we had some sunny days and warmer weather, and you know, it's it's line out the door to get an outdoor table at most of the places. You know, whether it's Bethesda Row, Pike and Rose, Santana yeah. Row. Yeah, the demand is definitely there. Unlike the great financial crisis, I think personal balance sheets for. You know, obviously not everybody in the country, but for a lot of people in the country are are much better um, yeah. now than you know they were 12, 13 years ago when we went through the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think there is some significant pent up demand that we're going to see seek to be satisfied as um, more people get vaccinated, weather warms up and infection rates go down and all that kind of stuff. And uh you know, we wanted to be in a position to be able to meet that demand and take advantage of it, not be in a situation where we had a lot of vacancies to uh, backfill coming out of the pandemic. We spent a lot of time talking about the fact that, you know, this is a, a moment in time. And when the moment in time is over, we want to be prepared for it. And I, I think that's, you know, how we've conducted ourselves and how we've operated for the last 11, 12 months. Yeah. So let's talk about the different uses. So we're, we're talking about restaurants. And one thing, and I, I should have found the article again, but it was like in the Wall Street Journal last week, I believe. And it talked about in Europe, the percentage of food in uh, particularly restaurants in a shopping center, maybe like 40, 50 percent. And here it might be 10, 15, 20 percent. And maybe we're under restauranted. So I think people will return quickly to restaurants. I don't know they're going to return as quickly to movie theaters and shopping and clothing as they return to restaurants. Any comments yeah. on those different uses in your centers and how you project those out? 
Yeah, I, I think you're probably right. And, you know, all this is available on our website in our investor presentation. But our, our portfolio has about 15, about 15 percent of our revenue comes from restaurants. And that's pretty equally split between uh, full service sit down and then, you know, quick serve or fast food. So that's 15 percent material under the number you mentioned for European mm-hmm. shopping centers. Right. Fortunately, we put theaters in a group with, you know, bowling and other entertainment places and call those those uses within our portfolio experiential. And that's that's two percent of our revenue and, you know, full price apparel, um, you know, is a single digit uh, number within our portfolio as well. And I, I think you're right. I mean, that. It's going to be a difficult uh, road to recovery for the theaters, and it's going to be interesting to see how that business recovers personally. I mean, I love going out to the movies, uh, always have. I hope it does. But it is hard to see how all that demand returns when you think through what's available streaming these days, how the you know younger people in our country uh, ingest their media. You know, it's, it's hard to see how that comes rip-roaring back, but I hope it does. Well, it's because it's been replaced. You just made the right point, right? The restaurant hasn't been replaced. We don't really want to cook every night. And we really don't want to carry out in little cartons every night from a nice restaurant. But we really don't mind our couch when we watch a movie. Right, right. And apparel is going to be interesting, too. You know, there are a lot of uh, one one theme, if you will, from the pandemic is clearly it, it, it didn't so much create new trends that just accelerated those that were already in place. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of legacy full price clothing brands, most of which are in enclosed retail environments, not in open air. Their demise was accelerated because of uh, COVID. And so how that business comes back is going to be interesting. You know, we've seen a lot of smaller brands that, that don't have those legacy issues get active on the, on the leasing side. Um, and we've done, you know, a handful of deals with the, those types of brands during COVID. But I think it's going to take a little while for full price apparel to, to sort itself out as well. And how does that settle in if you think about full price apparel or other apparel that have started up? How does that work in the world of online shopping and in the world of we don't wear ties very much anymore to work? And we don't go to dry cleaners because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think you're touching on something, and that's there's a there's a couple things going on, right? One is, one is there was this cadre of uh, legacy brands that you know the pandemic accelerated their demise or or is helping them towards their demise. The other is the casualization, if you will, of of how we dress to go to work, and yeah, we're 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 seeing that in the types of tenants that want space at our properties. Absolutely. But I think that, you know, much like uh, everything over the last year or so, I think there's going to be pent up demand for that as well. It's interesting, you know, if you come down to Santana Row on a Friday night and kind of look at who's lining up to get in some of the restaurants on a Friday evening, I was surprised over the last few weeks as the weather warmed up to see people really getting dressed up to go out, Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is a great sign because even, you know, three, four, five months ago, we didn't see that. I think people are starting to sense that we're, we're near the end or can see the end of the mm-hmm. pandemic. And I think everybody's moods improved a little bit and nobody's been out shopping uh, for a long time. And you know, I, I think as a country, we still like to do that as an activity. And uh, it's, it's great to see uh, people getting dressed up to go out to eat at night again. Mm-hmm. As a focus group of one on my Zoom calls during the workday, I have upgraded from my sweatpants to back to my jeans. <laughs> that's that's huge progress, Matt. I don't know that I go back to slacks, though, particularly on my Zoom calls, but we'll see how that works out. So do those accelerated trends particularly punch on the chin the malls? And talk about that sector, how that sector casts a shadow over the rest of retail, maybe or maybe not, but certainly in the popular press. And then are there opportunities for the magic that you know how to do in those malls that aren't going to make it or that really even the malls that make it have to change pretty significantly. Yeah. And I guess, you know, there's a lot, yeah, whether you turn on CNBC or open the wall street journal or any other sort of larger national publication, there's a lot that's been written on the malls uh, recently and, you know, in the recent past. Right. And I think, 
retail in general, and you know, we've been saying this for a long time, Don, Litter CEO, uh, vocally, there's, there's too much retail in the United States, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of that too much retail is in class B or worse malls. Mm-hmm. And you know, like we were talking a few minutes ago, the pandemic will has and will accelerate the demise of those properties. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you lose a legacy full price clothing retailer in one of those properties, it's it's hard to see who the backfill tenant is going to be. Now, is that a class B mall? Then what happens to class A mall? And then in the demise of those malls, they become mixed use one day or schools or something. Yeah, and I think the ultimate outcome there is highly variable and obviously depends on all the myriad of characteristics of that particular property, how it's encumbered by leases and what the demand drivers are around that property, right? And who knows, it's hard to hard to broad brush that for sure. Um, I, I think all you could say is there's too many of them and a big chunk of them are going to go away and a lot's been published on that, right? The A malls, the fortress malls, you know, I have a hard time seeing how they go away. You know, they're run by uh, very capable operators with uh, very strong balance sheets, uh, generally speaking. They still do a lot of sales. And I think that's going to be part of the uh, retail landscape in the United States for the foreseeable future, mm-hmm. right? So the AMOLs, I, I don't I don't really think are going to change much. We're, we've been, you know, think about our portfolio. We, we've been seeing demand, if you will, from maybe four different sources. One is what I mentioned earlier. We are seeing tenants, particularly restaurant tenants um, that were exclusively, you know, downtown or CBD tenants come to the suburbs. So that's that's kind of one de- demand driver within our it, Let me interrupt for a sec, because when they come yeah. to the suburbs, can we keep talking about Santana Road? They want to be in an open air center. They don't want to be inside a fortress mall. That is correct. Okay, keep that going. That is correct. And we're seeing certain tenants within the malls start to look outside of the mall where maybe before the pandemic they wouldn't have, mm-hmm. right? So that's, let's call that the, the second demand driver, second bucket. The third is, you know, within the open air space or and within the first ring suburb space, which is generally where we operate, we're seeing tenants that want to upgrade their location. Mm-hmm. So they want to move from a weaker center to a stronger center. They want to be with better co-tenants, not co-tenants that are going to go out of business or or maybe are already dark stores. So we're seeing, especially the larger national discounters in particular, really look to upgrade their space. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth bucket, and the one you might not think about, is we're seeing a lot of new-to-market demand. So tenants that have never had a store before or are maybe a small chain and uh, don't have legacy issues, really putting down the uh, pedal and starting to do more deals and and grow. We're seeing a lot of demand from that. Give an Uh, example just of the type of store or specific? Yeah, I mean, like uh, Serena and Lily that's going into Bethesda Row, Arcteryx, which is a um, outdoor clothing brand that's uh, under construction here at Santana Row, Faraday, uh, which opened during the pandemic at Santana Row. Madewell, Warby Parker. I mean, they've been around a little bit longer right. than others, but they're expanding. And in the restaurant category, um, Sweet Green, Kava, Shake Shack, Salt and Straw, Great Ice Cream, if you haven't had it, mm-hmm. uh, Blue Bottle, kind of your third wave coffee provider. All those tenants, which are really, really good tenants, uh, Nike Live, which is a new concept for Nike, we've done deals with during the pandemic. And list is longer than that, but that's been a real pleasant surprise to mm-hmm. us is this, let's call it new to market uh, demand driver within our portfolio. Mm-hmm. So let's slightly change the subject. And I want to ask about urban retail, kind of street retail. One of my prior guests in the retail sector is Ken Bernstein from Acadia. And he talked a lot about two neighborhoods that I'm also familiar with DuPont Circle and Georgetown. And we talked about how those neighborhoods are changing and are the stores dark or light. So I want to mash that up with a similar Maybe a different question, which is talk about a retail concept that then fails under its own success. Maybe Third Street Promenade, and fails is the wrong word, but starts to feel yucky under its own success. And what happens to that and how you keep these things lively? So A, talk about kind of cities, and I don't know if you have much investment in non-centers, and then also kind of what to do with a challenge place that might 
not feel the juice that it did 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. So, you know, unlike Acadia and Ken, we don't have a lot of experience in center cities or really much in the way of storefront mm-hmm. retail more. That was that was part of our business back in the 90s. And mm-hmm. we shed most of that. We still have a little bit of that within our portfolio, but we're not we're not in Manhattan, for example, or we're not in downtown D.C., or we're not in Union Square in San Francisco um, mm-hmm. by any means. We don't we don't have that depth of experience. And I, I do think, you know, on one hand, fortunately, because I think it's right. been extra tough for those landlords because the rents were set at very high levels. And it's going to be hard to see how sufficient demand comes back for those urban stores and restaurants until um, people return to the office and you know, return at a relatively high occupancy percentage, uh, which I think we have a ways to go on that, right? Yeah, it's interesting because those places organically have what you inorganically have created at a Santana Row and a Bethesda Row because it has the true organic shopping, retail, entertainment, lively experience that only comes from a real true neighborhood. But a lot of them are suffering. Yeah, they are. And it's it's unfortunate. I mean, you know, I was going to say we all, and I, I know that's not quite right, but I, I certainly love cities and I'd love to see a healthy San Francisco and, a, mm-hmm. you know, healthy Manhattan and all that kind of stuff. But I and I think they will come back. And, you yeah. know, in the case of Manhattan, I think it comes back pretty quickly. Yeah. But it's going to take some time. And then, you know, you have probably a disconnect between the level of business those businesses are going to do and the rent that they used to pay, right? Um, which is a good segue to the Third Street Promenade. I mean, you know, that's that's a, a challenging set of buildings for us, largely because of those reasons. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to be flexible and we're going to have to get the city of Santa Monica to work with us and be flexible as to what the, you know, potential backfill of those uh, those buildings looks like. But there's nothing you can do, Matt, other than work through it. And I'm sure we will work through it. It will it will just take more time than it would if the if the property were, you know, one of our first string suburb properties. But fortunately for us, it's a it's a very small part of what we do and a small part of our portfolio. One of the hard things about um, doing urban retail, you know, unlike let's say let's use San, continue to use Santana Row as an example, we own and control all of Santana Row. We make all the merchandising decisions. We do all the janitorial and landscape and security, and we can create the environment we want, right? We, we can't do that on the Third Street Promenade. There are multiple different owners. There's a city that's very active and has an opinion as to how things uh, should go. And, you know, the a lot of the owners have different motivations. Um, cash flow is important, and, you know, they, they may not make the right merchandising decision for cash flow reasons or may not invest in their property the way uh, we would or, you know, another publicly traded retail REIT would. And it makes it more difficult for sure. Personally, I think Santa Monica is a great community and has a lot going for it. And, you know, they're not making any more real estate three blocks from the Pacific Ocean west of the 405 in LA. So we'll be okay, but it will be uh, a longer slog than it would be if we owned and controlled it all. For sure. Mm-hmm. Hey, we're going to need to talk about you, Jeff Burkus, in a few minutes, but I still have a couple more questions. One of which is, is PropTech. How does PropTech affect the retail sector? Good question. So we've looked at a lot of different PropTech things across our portfolio, not only for um, our retail and office properties, but also for our residential properties. One PropTech solution that we would love to see, and I, I should have maybe mentioned this earlier, is... You know, when the pandemic started, one thing we rolled out across all of our properties was what we call the pickup, which is a curbside program where if you want to get something from one of our merchants or restaurants, there's dedicated parking. So you can pull up close to the front door of that of that merchant or restaurant and they can bring to your car or, gee, if you want to return something, take from your car, you know, whatever it is you're there to do that day. And, um, you know, a great prop tech solution and we're working on it. It's been harder than um, we had hoped, but is to make all that sort of seamless for the consumer and allow them to interact, if you will, with more than one merchant at a time on a single platform. 
So that's a prop tech thing that we're looking at across our portfolio and working on across our portfolio right now. Mm-hmm. We've been through a long conversation about retail and we haven't used the Amazon word. And I'll, just one last prop tech question. Does Shopify help disintermediate or protect some of the kind of merchants that you have from Amazon? Yeah, I don't know, Matt. That's a really good question. And I think I don't have a firm opinion one way or the other on that. I think that's a little bit of a time will tell type thing. Mm-hmm. Certainly watching it closely, but I don't know enough or not smart enough to tell you how that one works out. It's a big question. Okay. Well, I will admit as every most of us are Amazon Prime members, but I know my kids like, don't do that. Go to a store. It matters. But she doesn't talk like a robot like I just did, but that would be her comment to me all the time. And so you do have a next generation of young people in particular who just want to go shopping and, or they care, yeah. right? They care about merchants. Yeah. And, you know, also uh, a lot of the younger people seem to think that having uh, a bunch of cardboard shipped to your house and having delivery trucks driving all over is not maybe the best thing for the environment. So I think there's a lot to work through on that. I mean, that's one thing that I think the bigger retailers in particular have learned through the pandemic that uh, if they can get the customer to come to the store and pick things up, or if they can distribute through the store as opposed to a centralized warehouse, it's a lot more economic, mm-hmm. a lot more economic. And that's you know why I think this pickup program that we're running at our properties, uh, you know, if you look at what Target's doing with uh, buy online, pick up in store, Walmart, others, um, that's why. So there's a lot of reasons why you may not want to uh, just click on something from your computer at home and have, uh, have a big box show up on the front porch, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's change the subject. Jeff, how did you get into all this? Where, where, yeah. where are you from? So we're going to go run quickly through this. I don't save enough yeah, time on leading voices We should run quickly anymore. through it so uh, we don't uh, put everybody on the phone to sleep. But uh, yeah, it, you know, my story is maybe a little different. I grew up in a very small town in, in the Midwest, uh-huh. uh, not from a real estate family. and really knew nothing at all about real estate growing up. And I, uh, I went to school at the University of Denver. And um, during my freshman year, I made the decision that I didn't want to go back to the small town in Iowa that I grew up in over the summer. I thought that would be boring. And I thought living in Denver would be a lot more fun. And, you know, my parents were like, well, you do what you want, but, you know, we're not paying for it. So um, I had to go find a job. And I went into the uh, career placement center to look for a summer job. And there was a summer internship at Coldwell Banker, what now is CBRE. I work in the data bank in uh, the downtown Denver office. And um, I applied for the job and I was one of six interns that summer. And uh, it just happened to be, you know, this was the early 80s. The oil boom was in full bloom, if you will, in Denver. There were 17 high-rise office buildings under construction. It was an exciting time to be uh, downtown. Uh, All the brokers in the office were young and fun and making a lot of money. And I'm like, boy, this is is great. Uh, (laughs) I think I found something that I'd like to do. And Uh uh, I went back to school in the fall and I didn't have a major at that point in time. But I, uh, you know, I guess now you go online at, at that point in time, I thumbed through the curriculum catalog and uh, lo and behold, uh, University of Denver had one of uh, two, I think at the time, real estate majors. So I switched from, you know, undeclared liberal arts or whatever it was into the uh, finance and real estate department and got my uh, degree in, in finance and real estate and, and then went, went to work in the business. So that's how it happened for me by a random walker by chance, if you will. And, uh, you know, looking back, I didn't think too much about it at the time. And, you know, I'm kind of glad I didn't because it worked out really well and really had a happy and fun career in, in our business. Yeah. And then how did that get you to JMB? Well, similarly, I uh, it was around school. So I relocated from Denver to Washington, D.C. And when I did that, I also uh, enrolled in uh George Washington University's MBA program. And, um, you know, like my undergraduate years, I kind of had to figure out a way to pay for that. So I was working as a lender and going to school at night. And uh, one of the first deals I did was with Susan Karras, who I know you know. Yep. She's great. She's the first person I met in commercial real estate in uh, Washington, D.C. in 1990, so 31 years ago. And uh, it was a really complicated deal uh, that she was working on for Joey Kempfer uh, Mm -hmm. in one of his buildings in the West End. And uh, 
you know, I was able to figure out how we would lend the money to allow uh, Joey to buy uh, five-eighths of a fee interest under an office building that he didn't already own. And um, Sue said, hey, you know, you got to go talk to my husband, George, uh, who works at JMB. And I did. And George says, hey, great, um, get your MBA and you can come work at JMB. And I did. I went to work for JMB about a week after I graduated from GW. So that's how it all started. And how long were you at JMB? And then for our listeners, you know, JMB kind of wound up going out of business, except it seeded the private equity business in commercial real estate. So a wonderful place to have come from. Yeah, I, I worked in the um, institutional or pension funded advisory side of uh, JMB. And uh, that business was sold to United Asset Management, who owned Heitman. Mm-hmm. That business was sold to UAM and rolled into Heitman about a year and a half after I started. And then I was at Heitman for, I think, two or three years and then uh, got recruited to come to Federal. So then Federal, you start there in D.C. You're a deal guy, I think. And then yes. how did that evolve to your movie to the West Coast and then kind of bifurcated leadership in the company and you're recently becoming president? I started in the Shopping Center Acquisitions Group at Federal was there for a year and a half, left. Then Don, who was the uh, COO at the time, and Steve Getman, CEO at the time, called and asked me to come back to work with Don on realigning Federal's business plan, which I did. Uh, That was February of 2000, and we got everything kind of started, restarted, if you will, on the right track or the the track that we're on today. And then, uh, you know, a few years after that, actually just not too long after Don became CEO, he needed somebody to come out to the West Coast. Jan Sweetnam, who, you know, for 21 years or 22 years has worked at Federal Realty and has been my partner out here for Mm -hmm. 17 years. Jan was uh, the only officer at Federal on the West Coast and Don's like, hey, you know, we need we need somebody else out on the West Coast to, to work with Jan and I raised my hand to do that and uh, we came out here in February of 2004, so 17 years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, it, and let me ask a question and go back and that realignment of the business plan, I think in part, and maybe I'm mixing up different stories here, was part partially about Santana Row having been an overly large bet by the company and probably not a good thing for Steve Gutman's career there. And then it got righted. Any, any thoughts about that? Well, the facts around why I left and why I came back probably explain that. I mean, you know, we, in the 90s, had a, had a very large acquisitions group that did both street retail acquisitions, a group of people did that, and then a group of people did shopping center acquisitions. And mm-hmm. the whole street retail business kind of morphed into the mixed-use uh, business. Mm-hmm. And Steve was very uh, forward-thinking about that and, and very passionate about it. And he invested a fair amount of money in personnel to grow the mixed-use business. And that group of people started um, teeing up um, mixed-use development deals around the country. Mm-hmm. So in, in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, Atlanta, Georgia, a couple other places, I don't remember. And the response to Santana opening was not conducive to continuing down that path. So my first job when I came back in 2000 was to work with Don on a, on a business plan that realigned our strategy and in many respects got us back to what we'd been doing all along, which is buying really well-located shopping centers and over time redeveloping. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how that how that all came about. But let's go back to an early part of this conversation with that lessons learned. Hey, we learned a lot. We learned a lot. You learned a lot at Santana Row, which is now one of the exemplary properties in your portfolio and maybe in the country in terms of that product type. And maybe it grew too fast, too quick in the wrong way before, but now you're fine-tuned it and learned so much from that. Any comments on what didn't work and then what did work so well? Well, strategically, the thing that didn't work back in the day was it was a very large bet in what at the time was a relatively small company, Mm -hmm. right? And we took a lot of risk developing the property in the late 90s, early 2000s in a small company, and we took a risk across uh, many different levels. Of course, you know, you don't, you don't really pre-lease a lot of the type of space that's in a mixed-use property like right. San Pedro. I mean, it's not full of big anchor boxes and, you know, the big anchor boxes are really the types of tenants that pre-lease a property before it's built. It's, it's a lot of restaurants and smaller shops and those tenants just aren't the type of tenants that do a lot of pre-leasing. So we took a risk on leasing up retail space 
We also built apartments for the first time. So we took development risk on getting those designed right and built and also leased. We took some risk with the hotel as well. And then from a timing perspective, we did that at a point in time when Silicon Valley was in one of its cyclical peaks from you know, a construction cost standpoint. And we, we were leasing into a trough when the, uh, when the bubble burst in Silicon Valley uh, in 2000, 2001. So just a lot of things that uh, in hindsight you want to do. You want to make that big a bet. You want to take uh, risk across you know, all three product types at once. So we're very careful now going forward on how much development we have uh, in process at any one point in time as a percentage of our total assets. Uh, we, we keep that number in the single digits and we're very mindful of that. And so something like that doesn't happen again. And then we mitigate risk wherever we can you know, with respect to um, guaranteed maximum price construction contracts, pre-leasing to the extent we can do it, maybe bringing in, like we did at Assembly Row with the first group of apartments specialists uh, to take that risk first until the market's proven out. So, um, yeah, just a lot of big picture learning from that experience 20 some years ago. I, I also remember it felt like a jewel box and it was targeted to ultra high end, some of the shops versus popular shops. And I think that was another lesson from that time. Yeah, there was a lot of luxury tenancy in the first round of leases at Santana Rail. And, you know, if you back in the day looked at the market on paper and the amount of income and wealth that there was at that point in time in Silicon Valley, it seemed to make all the sense in the world. But either there wasn't enough critical mass uh, of that type of shopper or enough critical mass of that type of tenant, and it didn't work. I mean, in many cases, the sophistication level of the shopper did not quite match the numbers on paper, and those tenants didn't do well 20 years ago. So, Jeff, you've been chief investment officer of Federal and then promoted to president of the West Coast and then recently promoted to president and chief operating officer of Federal. Federal's in Rockville. You started out there, but you've been out here on the West Coast since kind of the Santana story. Kind of talk about that. Talk about your progression and then talking about being a leader at the company working remotely. Good question, Matt. And that's accurate. And, you know, dialing back even farther before I was chief investment officer, I was, you know, part of our shopping center acquisitions group. So I've mm -hmm. really been fortunate to be here and be able to do a lot of different things. And part of that goes to the culture of federal, you know, where we like to give people internally the opportunity to do different things and step up. And, you know, fortunately for me, Don and, you know, now Don and the board have, have given me that opportunity and, and have for most of my tenure here. And it's it's been personally really, really great. And it is, you know, as you point out, it is a little bit different being 3,000 miles away from corporate headquarters. You know, one of the other things that's really cool about Federal is the senior team, generally speaking, has been here for a relatively long time and we've all worked together very closely for a relatively mm -hmm. long time and we know each other well and know you know what each of us are good at and not good at and there's a high degree of uh, trust and communication which allowed that to happen and I, I think it's really great that doesn't occur every place um, and not every place you know looks deeply within like we do at federal when we're when we're thinking about promoting people so mm -hmm. i've clearly benefited from that you know i'm very excited about my new role it's it's an honor actually to get the role as you know i came out here from dc my wife was born and raised in dc you know from a lifestyle perspective you know as, as soon to be empty nesters we're looking forward to being able to spend more time in dc and i'm yeah, really looking forward to spending time with our with our team there as well, and with Jan Sweetenham on the West Coast and Wendy Sear on the East Coast. Uh, the three of us kind of being responsible for leading the the real estate functions uh, at the company. So it's you know all around just for me personally been a wonderful experience, and I I think I'm a great example of uh, some of the things that are really wonderful about Federal. Mm -hmm. And bringing that perspective, having a senior leader on the West Coast, does that add perspective from a different market than if everyone's in one spot? Oh, for sure it does. For sure it does. And you know, if you dial back to why we did that, I guess now 10 years ago, 
you know, we all have a, a fundamental belief, you know, whether it's the senior team, the board, whatever, that real estate is a local business and getting people that can make decisions as close to the real estate as possible is a very, very important benefit. So we have you know, leaders in all of our, our regional offices and in Philadelphia, in um, Somerville, Massachusetts, in, in California, in, in Rockville that, you know, are close to the real estate and, and can make those decisions. And, you know, having senior people 3,000 miles away from the corporate headquarters, we, you know, Jan and, and me, even though, you know, going forward, I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on the East Coast is, is important because we're, we're accessible to the people that are three hours away from a time zone perspective, and we can, we can make decisions quicker and, you know, have that kind of a local feel and flavor for what's going on, uh, which is very important when you're in a, in a local business or a hyper local business like real estate. And that's why we conducted that experiment with me, if you will, right. 10 years ago, and uh, it's worked out great. Yeah. And I like that it, in your new role, it unites all of the real estate functions kind of under one roof and one perspective because it are the drivers are equally new business as well as investing in your existing properties. Right. And it's good to have the two close together because they're so interdependent. And again, I think, you know, if you understand operations, you make better investment decisions and vice versa. So I think that's a, a smart thing that we as a company have done. And, you know, uh, again, it's going to be a big challenge for me. And it's, it's something I'm really looking forward to and very, very thankful for the opportunity. Cool. Kind of wrapping up thoughts here. Any comments, given all that we've talked about, about a, what you do special, most specially, but also kind of thinking about the future of the retail and the headlines that we see and any surprises coming in the business? You know, one thing that I think we're going to find, and we're starting to, we're starting to see this in, in leasing, you know, whenever there's a disruptive event, whether it be the GFC or the pandemic, it seems like the strong gets stronger and the, the weak mm-hmm. get weaker or they just completely go away. And I think that's true or has been true with um, tenants. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the tired concepts that uh, aren't well capitalized, haven't been invested in. You know, a group of those were put out of business in the great financial crisis, you know, 11, 12 years ago. And a, a group of those have been put out of business. And there's still some to go, will be put out of the business by the pandemic. The tenants that remain, that have been through both of those things, and, and you know, the ones that have been through the pandemic and survived, I think they come out stronger. And I think that's the case with the properties and the landlords, too. The better properties will get better. They will consolidate demand. We're seeing that in spades in our, in our own portfolio right now. And well, we still have a ways to go to get out of this. And, you know, things, one thing about retail that you can count on is it's, it's always going to be changing. And, you know, well, things will change and evolve. I, I, I think we will, we will be stronger coming out of this because of that. I think what's important too is, you know, again, when there's a disruptive event, that's when you get paid to be a great landlord, you know, to think long-term about your properties, to invest in your properties, to expand them, to change them, to make them better, and to do the right things for your customers and your tenants. And we've done that, and I, I think we'll be rewarded for that. So the last question, always on leading voices, is what's your advice for a young person getting into the real estate business? Well, the great thing about the commercial real estate business, I think, is that it's a very, very big tent. Yep. And there's a lot of different things you can do within the tent. And what's key is, you know, understanding as a person what you're good at and what you're not good at, what your what your strengths are. And there's many different paths that once you understand that, you can go down and develop a great career for yourself. I I think that you know, and I don't spend a ton of time doing this. I'd like to spend more time doing it. But, you know, I think a, a lot of young people, whether they're in high school, entering college or college entering the workforce, you know, I think our business needs to do a better job of explaining to people that age what the opportunities are. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, if I'm if I'm sitting there talking to uh, a high school senior or a college junior, my advice would be, you know, if it's something you're interested in, just get a job and go do it. Right. Don't overthink it, because I think, you know, regardless of how you enter the business, your first two or three jobs, your first five or 10 years, there's an incredible amount that you can learn. 
And a lot of what you learn in one discipline is applicable to another. You just got to find your, you got to find your path. So I want to spend too much time thinking about it or overanalyzing it. I just go get some experience and not worry about the pay so much as who I'm working for and who I'm working with. Totally true. Because that's what, that's what matters at the end of the day. You know, for better or worse, I guess I've been lucky to work with some really, really great people in this business that, you know, have been and are, you know, lifelong friends. And that's a big part of having a great career and a happy life, too, is uh, doing what you like with people that you enjoy. So put yourself in a position to do that and think about those things before you think about the money. Right, totally agree. It's just, there's no better advice. I'll, I'll amplify two things. One is that big tent, and we talk about it on Leading Voices because we've shown the breadth of the tent, you know, through all these conversations and Leading Voices. And I don't know that it's that you're going to pick retail to go, oh, I'm all about retail or I'm all about apartments or I'm all about office or industrial. But you just wind up taking one of those stakes and going, tent stakes and going for it. But then you have to find what your role is. And that's trial and error till you know, okay, I'm that kind of person. And this is where I'm going to gain my big experience in the industry. Yep. Yep. And you got to have your head up and your eyes open and take advantage of opportunities or create opportunities for yourself along the way. Right. Mm -hmm. All true. Hey, Jeff, thank you so much for being my guest and my friend. And we will keep talking about all of these things offline, but this is a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matt. I, I enjoyed it as, as well and appreciate you asking me uh, to be a part. Cool. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.